Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Here we are concluding our formal series on the life of Jacob with an overview of Jacob's life with James Jordan. But we are going to continue this series on through the life of Joseph, as Joseph's life is a continuation of the life of Jacob. Here, Jordan helpfully uses the priest-king-prophet paradigm to lay out the life of Jacob, but also discuss the life of Joseph, David, Jesus, and ourselves as well. Before we get into the episode, we wanted to let you know about our 2020 Nevin Lectures. The 2020 Nevin Lectures will be held on February 7th and February 8th, and will feature talks from Dr. Vincent Bacote, who is the Associate Professor of Theology at Wheaton College. Here, he's going to be discussing the unique gifts of the African-American Church and how they can be used to edify the Catholic Church. After his lectures, Peter Lightheart will be giving a response, and there will be a session of brotherly dialogue over these issues. So for more information and for registration, you can check out the link down there in our show notes. And while you're there, please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, where we provide weekly videos on Bible liturgy and culture. Right now, we're in the middle of a series on liturgy and our labor. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan giving a very helpful overview of the life of Jacob. The second half of the Jacob story is the life of Joseph, but before we go there, I thought it would be good to summarize what we have seen in the Jacob story that we've considered, and then we will proceed into the last part of Genesis. Well, we can set it up today, and what I would like to do is summarize Jacob's life by talking about our lives and the lives of people in the Bible, they're set out in a certain way that provides a kind of a grid or a sequence that we can compare with, and this is what, so to speak, the normal human life looks like in the Bible. You've got childhood, you've got adolescence, which is a kind of a crisis time. You've got marriage and entrance into your calling say around 20. You've got a midlife crisis. After the midlife crisis, you have a time of peace. Sixth, you've got a problem, you've got another crisis, which is kind of an extended thing, but I'm going to put dealing with your kid, dealing with your world. And in seventh, you come to your eldership, or, well, actually, eldership's already there, but the twilight of life, what Bunyan calls uh, what Beulah Land, a time of rest before you get to the end. There are three crises here. Adolescent crisis, midlife crisis, and crisis with what happens. The way this looks is like this. You start out as a child and you learn stuff. In adolescence, your body changes and you discover that you need something to complement yourself. That's when boys and girls stop being neutral and become different. And, of course, there's all kinds of desires that you have to say no to when you're an adolescent. And you come out of this, you enter into your calling, and this is what in the Bible is priesthood or being a crown prince, which is the same thing. I'm going to show you this in just a minute. 
After a number of years of working in your calling as a crown prince under authority, or being a priest, and a, a priest means servant, being a servant under authority, you grow to the point where it's kind of hard to stay under authority anymore. Gee, these guys really don't know what they're doing and I could do a better job. Then you have to resist the temptation to overthrow the authority and seize power. And if you resist that temptation, eventually you get through this crisis, you come to this time of peace which makes you a king. And after you become a king, then you've got to deal with those who are under you. You've got your children, or you've got your realm. You have to wrestle with them. And if you wrestle with them successfully, or even if you don't and you have a lot of difficulties, you learn from it. Eventually, in old age, you become a prophet or an elder. Now, I can illustrate this about 20 different ways. And today we're going to just take six illustrations of it. And this will be a way we can summarize Jacob's life. But the way we want to do it is to summarize Jacob's life by looking at some others. There are basically three times of crisis or test in the biblical narratives. And they happen in our lives. Now, let me say this too. Every human being is different. Every human being in adolescence marries someone different from everybody else. Everybody's midlife crisis is different. And sometimes there's one big crisis that happens where your world falls apart. Sometimes there's a number of years of difficulties that you go through. Usually, for the man at least, it has to do with his calling. But it's different. But the Bible gives us exemplary patterns that we can look at to learn something about our lives. And it'll help us to summarize Jacob. Start with Adam. Adam starts out as a child. He names these animals. He becomes aware through naming the animals that he needs a complement and that he doesn't have one. So his childhood and adolescence happen real fast, but the adolescent crisis for Adam is, hey, where's my girl? And then he goes to sleep, and the Bible calls it deep sleep, which is just like death. And he comes out of this into a resurrection, and there she is. And so he enters into marriage, and he enters into his calling. Now, what Adam is supposed to do in his calling is keep his hands off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means rule and authority. We've discussed this before. He is not supposed to seize it being the king around there, but he's supposed to be a servant in the garden. He's supposed to feed Eve and protect her and instruct her, and he doesn't do a good job of it. He lets her eat the fruit because he wants to see what will happen. He's standing there the whole time. And so he perverts his calling here, and when he gets to the crisis at the tree, he never becomes a king. He gets kicked out. Oh, let's look at David. When does David leave home to become a priest or a crown prince? David leaves home after he's fought with the bear and the lion, and then he fights with Goliath. These are these crises. And he moves into Saul's palace, and he marries... Saul's daughter, and he becomes a priest. Priest means what? Palace servant. The priests of Yahweh were the palace servants of his palace, which was the tabernacle and the temple. But this word priest is also used for the servants of the kings. Not very often, but enough times to where it's clear that Kohen means 
palace servant. David becomes a palace servant, and David also becomes a crown prince. Does anybody remember how we know that David is the crown prince? Who makes David crown prince? Jonathan does. And how does Jonathan make David the crown prince? It's a ritual act. Jonathan takes his armor off and puts it on David. And by doing so says, you will be the crown prince. I won't be. So that's the amazing Jonathan, one of the most wonderful people in the Bible. Gives up his position as crown prince to David. And of course, as crown prince, David is out there fighting the wars. And he's in Saul's palace. That's moving through this first crisis. David's crisis was to fight. He fights a bear and a lion, which are just animals. Then he fights Goliath. And now he's ready to get married and become a warrior, crown prince. And he starts going out and he kills his myriads, where Saul has only slain his thousands, and that's... Hard for Saul to live with. Well, what about Isaac? Let's look at Isaac. What's Isaac's childhood crisis? Well, Isaac's is to be a sacrifice. Isaac carries this wood up the mountain and lies down on top of it and waits for the knife. That's what he has to go through. Happily, most of us didn't have to go through anything like that when we were adolescents. But he passes his test, you see, and he comes out of it. Isaac is willing to die. Abraham is willing to give him up. God blesses that and gives an animal in the stead. And Isaac comes forth and he gets married and he enters into his calling. That's his crisis. What's Jacob's childhood crisis? It's a bit different. Jacob spends 77 years putting up with Esau and Isaac. And finally, the crisis comes when he obeys his mother and participates in her concealing and then revealing things to her husband. Then he has to leave and go out and get a wife. The crisis was that event where they deceived Isaac. And he goes out and he gets his wife and enters into his calling as a shepherd there under Laban. Now he has to submit to somebody. See, we'll come back to this. Joseph. When does Joseph leave home? Well, Joseph doesn't voluntarily leave home. It's fine with David to leave home. It's time to leave Jesse's house and go off and get married to this cute princess. Michal, and Adam was certainly happy to go through his crisis and get married. And Joseph, he just gets sold off into slavery. Leaving home for him was not pleasant. It wasn't terribly pleasant for Jacob either. He's forced to leave. That's his crisis, and he comes down to Egypt, and he enters into Potiphar's house, and he enters into his calling, and he is a priest. He is submissive to Potiphar, and he does what Potiphar says. He doesn't get married. The marriage thing in Joseph's case is different. He gets married after his midlife crisis, which is after he goes to prison. But he's tempted by Potiphar's wife, which shows that the whole marriage, can I get married now? Can I go ahead and have this girl? That's all in view here. And, of course, Joseph says, no. With Jesus, it's his baptism. That's when Jesus leaves home at the age of 30. You see, there are different ages here. 77 for Jacob, 17 for Joseph, around 30 for Jesus. Jesus leaves home. He's baptized. God dumps on him all the responsibilities. And he marries the church and he starts to serve the church at that point. Enters into his calling. And Jesus acts as a priest, always obedient. Jesus doesn't act as a king. They come to him and say, divide our inheritance. Jesus says, no, I'm not your king. I don't divide inheritances. Not yet. Satan says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, nope, not yet. 
What are you doing, Jesus? I do only what my Father tells me to do. I am an obedient priest and crown prince. I am in that stage of life. I'm submitting to Herod. Herod wants taxes paid, I pay him. Rome wants taxes, we pay him. Temple wants taxes, we pay him. We're under authority. We're serving. Palace servant. That's Jesus for three years there. And then he starts to reveal that he is the coming king. He is crown prince. After the transfiguration, he starts to do more and more princely things. But, of course, he's not yet king until his ascension. When Jesus enters into his calling, his mother comes to him and says, Make some wine, Jesus. And Jesus says, What do I have to do with you? I've left home behind and entered into my calling. So this is the first crisis that we go through. Essentially, it's adolescence. That's what we can peg it in our minds. For us, it's that time of stress when you think, I'm never going to get married. And, of course, I could cheat, but I'm not supposed to do that as a Christian. I just have to hold off and wait for the right person. And that's a difficult time, especially when it just seems to go on year after year. Remember, with Jacob's case, Esau had been married 37 years. Esau already had sons and grandsons, and here Jacob is, 77, and he's not married yet. So it would be kind of hard. 77 is still a virgin. And everybody around is saying, hey, why wait? Well, that's your crisis. And the Bible gives us various examples of it, but we've looked at these to give us a picture, and with Jacob, that's where it falls. Jacob do something wrong in this crisis? No, he didn't. We'll review that. I think we'll get to it today. I hope we can just review all this today. Well, then the second test that comes in our lives has to do with our calling. And the test is, your servant is a palace servant. You're serving as a crown prince. And at some point, you have learned enough, you are skilled enough, you're competent enough to where you say, I could be in charge of this. That's what happens. Of course, when you first get a job, you don't know anything. But after you work the job for a while, and you've seen just how incompetent the people are above you, and how many stupid mistakes they make, eventually you say, you know, I could do this a lot better if I was in charge. And that may be true. Or it may be the people above you are harassing you so much, you say, I need to get out of here and find some peace and quiet to where I can pursue my calling. There are a variety of different ways in which your calling and your marriage sometimes gets to the point where you are in something of a crisis mode. And just as the crisis in adolescence is, you can't have sex till you're married. That's basically the crisis. That's what adolescents think about, and that's what they can't do. The midlife crisis is you can't become a king until you're ready to be. You have to take the lowest seat and wait to be asked to come up higher. You are not allowed to seize the robe. You're not allowed to dig your way into Noah's tent and say, hey, let's take the robe. You are not allowed to do that. You have to wait. And what all these guys do is not want to wait, and that's what Adam didn't do. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil means the tree of kingly rule. Knowledge of good and evil is, in the Bible over and over again, the quality of kings. The king has knowledge of good and evil. He has wisdom. His senses have been trained to discern good and evil, as it says in Hebrews. In other words, the period of time he spends under authority trains his senses to discern good and evil. In the midlife crisis, is you don't seize that position. You wait somehow for it to be given to you. Maybe you'll be fired and you'll have to go out and start your own company. 
Or maybe you just leave and start your own company because your wisdom tells you it's time to do it. Or there may be a variety of things that you do, ways in which this happens, but everybody faces this. seems like your life is worthless and you need something, some place to, you need peace and you need to be out from under King Saul. You need to be out from under Herod. Well, Adam fails at this point. He fails at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He tries to make himself God instead of waiting for God to invite him up to a higher place. So with Adam, we don't even get to this last stage of life. He doesn't come to peace. He's kicked out. David, however, provides us a good example of this. David fights all these battles, and then the crisis starts to come. David is a hero. For several years, David is a hero. Saul has slain his thousands, and David has slain his myriads. And everybody likes David. And Saul likes David, but then Saul begins to turn against him. And Saul holds on to his spear, and he starts chucking it at David. So David has to run away. And uh, he spends several years with Saul trying to kill him, and then Saul would back off. Meanwhile, David is fighting all these other battles. He's defending Israel. Saul stays at home in the palace holding on to his spear because his enemies are all nearby. Jonathan's out there shooting arrows at the enemy, and David is throwing stones at the enemy. And this contrast between having a spear and having these weapons that go a great distance is a very important contrast in the book of Samuel. It has to do with how you fight the battles of the Lord. Well, the battles of the Lord are to take it out there. And David's doing all that. And as a result of persevering through this midlife crisis and not seizing Saul and not killing Saul when he had a chance, he becomes a king. And then there's seven and a half more years of it, aren't there? Because the northern tribes make Saul's son Ishbael, Ishbosheth, the king. And David is continually tempted, go on up there and conquer those tribes and kill Ishbosheth. Nope, won't do it. Well, wait. And so finally he becomes king and he's given peace in Israel. David fails at this third stage here. But David gets through this midlife crisis. He does not seize the tree of knowledge. He does not seize the kingship. He waits for it. Well, who's our third example down here? Isaac. Well, Isaac starts out pretty well. I mean, Isaac goes to Gerar and he submits to Abimelech. And then they tell him he can't dig wells there. He moves on. He doesn't rebel. He doesn't fight. But ultimately, Isaac fails because the crisis comes with Isaac's life. Am I going to try to seize the kingdom that God has given me and give it to Esau, who I like? That's just a way of keeping it for yourself. He likes Esau's food. He's united with Esau. Am I going to hold on to this kingdom? Or am I going to acknowledge that God is king and not seize the kingdom? In a sense, he already has it. So the question is not, do I seize it, but do I grasp it and not obey? He's supposed to give it to Jacob. He won't do it. So he doesn't come to. The story breaks off there. We don't really see anything about Isaac later in his life. In some ways, Isaac's covering both of this, but dealing with his sons is also part of it. But essentially, he tries to hold the kingdom for himself, and that's why Jacob has to do better than him. Well, Jacob is another positive example. Jacob submits to Laban. Laban keeps trying to cheat him, but Jacob always deals honestly. He plays by Laban's rules. Laban changes the rules, and Jacob plays by those rules. Then Laban changes the rules again, and Jacob plays by those rules. Unfortunately for Laban, God blesses him every single time, so Jacob gets real rich and gains his kingdom. 
And so all these difficulties of service in his calling, they come down to this midlife crisis, which, of course, is when Esau shows up across the river and God wrestles with him. And that's his midlife crisis. And he passes that test. He refuses to seize the kingdom. He says to God, if you want me to give all this stuff away to Esau, I'm willing to do it. Only please spare my wife and children. That's what he says. And God is pleased with that and says, you win the match. That's the kind of wrestler I want as my wrestler. And so he gives him peace. Peace with Esau. Comes across the river and Esau says, hey, little brother, hey, 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 come live with me. And he's got peace, peace all around. Peace for a number of years. The peace becomes a trap. But that's what he gets. He moves into this kingly phase. God says, you have wrestled with me and you have prevailed. And as Calvin says, that's what makes him a prince. Calvin has exactly right in his commentary on Hosea. He says, God allowed Jacob to win the match because by the Holy Spirit, Jacob had become mature enough to be made a prince. And he enters the land now as a prince. I'm using the word king here. Calvin says prince. Well, what about with Joseph? Joseph's in Potiphar's house. He's submissive. Of course, the midlife crisis comes with Potiphar's wife. And he refuses to go through it, so he goes into prison. He refuses to seize authority. Look, remember who Joseph is. And of course, we're going to be getting to this, but <laughs> Potiphar is the captain of the king's bodyguard. In Roman history, he's the captain of the Praetorian Guard. So he's the captain of the palace guard. So he is A number one next to Pharaoh. When Pharaoh sits on his throne, guess who's about four feet away from him? Potiphar. And all Potiphar's dudes are around the room. And it says Joseph was in charge of Potiphar's household. That means Joseph was in charge of all these guys. Joseph was Potiphar's lieutenant. When Potiphar was out of town, guess who's four feet away from Pharaoh? Joseph is. Head of the palace guard. Well, that's about as high as you can get. Almost. Of course, Joseph gets a bit higher. And then, of course, Potiphar's wife, she decides, hey, this guy's pretty cool. And so if Joseph had gotten involved with her, nobody would ever have known about it. Nobody would have talked. Guarantee you, none of those servants would have talked. And he could have had even more of Potiphar's household. But he says, no, I have only what my master has given me, and I will not seize anything more. He refuses to seize. Then he gets thrown in prison, but eventually he comes out, of course, <laughs> and he becomes basically the king, second only to Pharaoh, way over where he was before. So Joseph is a positive example. And, of course, the great positive example is Jesus. Jesus gets to this crisis, which is the cross. He submits to the cross, and he's elevated to kingship over the world at his ascension. But that's only the second stage. Now we've got a third stage, and this is where Jacob fails. And I haven't stressed this enough, so I want to stress it today because it has to be stressed as we go into the Joseph narrative. The next difficulty that we have is we have peace, we've got a nice situation. Now you've got to deal with your world. In the Bible, usually that means dealing with your grown children. Women don't want to hear this, but it's relatively easy to deal with small children. Of course, they drive you crazy and you spank them and it doesn't work and all the problems and difficulties that you have with small children, but it is relatively easy to deal with small children compared to dealing with grown children. Because grown children, you can't spank. You have to talk to them. 
you have to have enough wisdom out of your tongue. You can't go out with your bow and arrow or your spear. You can't fight this battle the way you did before. Dealing with grown children, it can't be physical. It has to be verbal. And that's why you're becoming an elder here. An elder or a prophet is somebody who knows how to talk. A king knows how to fight. A prophet, at this sixth stage in life, you are really learning how to talk the way you never have before. How to talk in such a way as to lead your children the right way, now that they're grown. And they're away from you. See, they've married, and they're somewhere else. And you see them getting into trouble. Okay, they're not under your authority anymore, so how do you deal with that? Because you still love them. And you see that your children are making mistakes, but you can't order them to do anything. You can't spank them. How do you deal with it? You have to deal with it by talking to them, and you've got to know how to talk to them in such a way that they're not alienated. Because you don't want to drive them off. Boss them around. They say, hey, you not to boss over me. I'm married. I've moved out. How do you deal with grown children? Or how do you deal with your subordinates? How do you deal with other people. If you're an elder and not a king, how do you persuade the king to do what's right? You have to learn to talk the right way. And this is the example the Bible gives over and over in these narratives. Because when David gets to this third point when he's at peace, what does David have to do? Well, he has to continue to be a warrior. What he's learned here he's not supposed to forget, but of course David fails here. This is where David failed. He's passed his midlife crisis. He's become a king. Basically, he's at peace. But there was a time when there were kings went forth to war, and he didn't do it. He didn't deal rightly with this world. So he takes advantage of Bathsheba, who was just a child who grew up in the palace and had always respected David. And when he says it's okay, I'm sure she thought it was. And she's married to Uriah, who's one of David's mighty men. So he's taking advantage there, and he kills Uriah. And then, having done that, he set a great example for his sons. And his sons go do the same things. And he can't deal with his sons. He messes up dealing with his sons. And he has to go through all kinds of suffering as a result of failing at this third phase in his life. Failing to deal with his children. He doesn't speak to them. He doesn't know what to say to them. What does the Bible say? David never corrected his sons. Well... Through all the suffering at the twilight of his life, he does become a prophet, he does prophesy, but gee, it would have been a whole lot easier if he had not blown it at this third phase. Jacob is exactly the same. Jacob fails to speak to his sons and he lets the idols do it. He fails to return to Bethel for too long. This is where Jacob makes his mistake. Let's just come back to that because we're on Jacob. Joseph is successful. Joseph has become a king, and now he's got to deal with all of his brothers. He's got to deal with them by language. Joseph's brothers, although they're the same age as him, they are in this son position because they're under his authority. And he comes and he deals with them, and he deals with them successfully with wisdom and craft and deception. He deceives them. It's one of the great deceptions in the Bible, and yet people complain against Jacob for being involved in deceptions, but nobody ever seems to... Complain about Joseph doing it, or Jesus, they both do it. Joseph sets up all these deceptions, and he deals properly, and so he shows wisdom. And Jesus, of course, is the same. Jesus will succeed in managing the church. He's not going to fail. And he manages the church through his words, by sending the Spirit to enable preachers and teachers to teach the Word 
accurately to his sons by giving wisdom. So the church is prophetic. Would that all of God's people were prophets, and then in Acts 2, the church becomes prophetic. And the church is now dealing with the world. Jesus is in heaven. He's at this phase here of his life, so to speak, and he's not going to fail. Well, what about Jacob? This is the problem with Jacob. Jacob goes out into his calling at Bethel, and he says to God, if you'll be faithful to me, I will return to Bethel, and I'll give you a tithe. So God is faithful to him, and God shows him Yahweh is God, nobody else. And he passes through his midlife crisis, and he's faithful, and he wrestles with Yahweh. There's no idolatry in Jacob's heart. And then God gives him peace. And then Jacob kind of forgets to go back to Bethel. He thinks, I'll get there eventually. This is why peace can be a trap. Well, I've got time. Right now, let's get things settled, and eventually we'll go back to Bethel. Meanwhile, though, there are all these false gods hanging around, because there are false gods everywhere. Rachel had brought some back. I don't think she believed in them. She was humiliating them, but they're still there. And, of course, there are plenty more false gods to buy. There are gods for sale everywhere. His sons are growing up. His sons are getting involved with false gods. They're marrying Canaanite women. We find that out with Judah. He marries a Canaanite woman. They're getting involved with these false gods. And Jacob doesn't stop it. But Jacob fails to deal rightly with his sons. And, of course, the first thing the sons do is they kill Joseph. In so many words, he thinks that Joseph's dead. They've sold him off into slavery. And, of course, the second thing they do is they massacre the men at Shechem. Why? Because of these false gods. And then God comes to him and says, weren't you going to come back to Bethel at some time? Yeah, yeah, I was. Don't you think maybe you should get rid of all those false gods? Yeah, maybe we should do that. Better late than never. But if he had done it 15 years earlier, how much nicer his life might have been. There's all those false gods hanging around in his household that he failed to deal with, so his sons grew up violent. They took on the characteristics of these gods. You know what these gods are like. You read the Iliad or any of the other ancient myths. All these gods are at war with each other all the time. They are loose morally, and they are in constant conflict. And you worship those kinds of gods, you take up those characteristics. And because he did not get rid of them, he didn't deal rightly with his sons. Jesus doesn't do that. What does he say in John? He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And all the other things. Jesus is going to manage his sons right, which is us. He manages his bride right, which is us. That's where Jacob fails. Jacob does not fail in the first part of his life. He fails here. God gives him peace, and he misses up the peace that God gives him. He doesn't get rid of those gods. What he should have done. So now Joseph is going to have to make up for that mistake. Jacob had to make up for Isaac's sin, and now Joseph is going to have to make up for Jacob's sin. Joseph has got to redeem these brothers, and Joseph has got to give us an example of somebody who has true wisdom in this third crisis phase of life and who becomes a prophet. Now Jacob, after all of his struggles and difficulties and failures in this third crisis, he comes to be an elder and a prophet too. But he has to do some repenting. He's got to go back to Bethel. He's got to bury these gods. And he's got to go through some punishment for it. But it would be nice not to have to do that. So this is a grid. This is a review of Jacob's life. And this is where we are. Jacob has become a king, but he has messed up the peace that the kingdom involves in because he has allowed idols to come in. And now, as a result, 
Joseph has to make up the difference. Well, as we back off from this first part of Jacob's life, because Jacob is only a secondary character from here to the end of Genesis, let's look very briefly at what the Bible says about him. Contrary to what many think, the Bible nowhere holds up Jacob as an example of deception or even as a negative example. I think we have it in our minds that somewhere in the Bible it says, evil Jacob, Jacob who cheated his brother, Jacob who deceived his father. Nowhere. There are no passages that say that. Nowhere in the Psalms, nowhere in the Prophets, nowhere in the New Testament. Jacob is never held up as a negative example. Jacob is always held up as an example of faith. The notion that Jacob was a bad guy comes exclusively from people reading Genesis a certain way. And some have tried to stuff it into Hosea 12. And that's the only place where you can find anything that might even hint at such a reading of Jacob's life. We'll look there. Hosea 12, 2-6 is the only passage that is sometimes thought to speak negatively of Jacob. But Calvin and most commentators rightly point out that Jacob is a contrastive and positive example in this passage and that Judah and Ephraim are being called to be like him. So let's hear it. God is speaking through Hosea to Ephraim, which is northern Israel, and to Judah, which is southern Israel. And he says that they are wicked. And then he holds up Jacob as an example, not of wickedness, but of what they ought to be like. Chapter 11, verse 12, Ephraim surrounds me with lies in the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Ephraim feeds on wind, but pursues east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he made a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has a dispute with Judah, and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Now, Jacob there means the whole kingdom. Now, what does it say? In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel, and he prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us, even Yahweh, God of hosts. Yahweh is his memorial name. Therefore, you people need to return to God. Observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. Now, what's the point here? Well, the point is Jacob was a man who returned to God. Jacob was a man who was faithful to God. He contended with God. He wrestled with God through tears. Remember that the wrestling with God is equivalent to all the tears that he shed in the prayer he prayed the night before where he begged God not to take away his wives and children, even if he was going to take everything else away. That's what he's saying here. Jacob was blessed by God. Calvin says he took his brother by the heel, means God predestinated him and gave him stuff. God blessed him. God has blessed the nation. And when he was old, he wrestled with God, and he returned to God, and he sought his favor, and that's what you ought to do. There's nothing negative here. Jacob is set forth as a positive example of what the nation ought to do. If you're true sons of Jacob, you ought not to be wayward. You ought to be seeking God's face. So that's the Bible's evaluation of Jacob. The Bible never criticizes him. But there's a popular evaluation of Jacob, and we'll just summarize it so we can move on. A, as we have seen, the popular evaluation of Jacob fails to take note of the fact that Jacob was called a perfect man as a youth. Jacob was a perfect man. And that in his bargaining with Esau, the text condemns Esau and not Jacob. Most people have this idea. Jacob cheated Esau. 
But the text says, thus Esau despised his birthright. It doesn't say, thus Jacob cheated his brother. And there wasn't any cheating going on. Esau could easily have walked on 20 yards and found some more food. His God was his stomach. Jacob was promised the covenant already by God. So he was only getting what was his own anyway. There was just nothing wrong here, making it out to be wrong. Esau complains about it, just as when Elijah shows up before Ahab, Ahab says, Elijah is the troubler of Israel. Well, the wicked are always blaming us. We don't take the wicked side here. Well, the fact that Esau is blaming Jacob doesn't change the fact that the Bible condemns Esau, not Jacob. Popular evaluation also fails to take note of the fact that Jacob was being submissive in going along with Rebekah's deception of Isaac. When parents are at war, you're still supposed to be submissive, so which one do you submit to, the one who's obeying or disobeying? God had commanded, Jacob is to inherit. Rebekah was being obedient. Isaac was being disobedient. Jacob rightly chooses to obey the parent who is obeying God. Jacob deceived his father. Yes, he did, but he was doing what Rebekah told him to do. Was she right or wrong? Well, we'll come to that in a second. Third, the popular evaluation of Jacob misreads the penile encounter, wrestling with God as a conversion from wickedness rather than as an elevation to kingship. I think this is very common in popular imagination. Calvin gets it right, but people have this idea that Jacob was a bad guy and God finally broke him down. As we saw in the text, it doesn't say that doesn't say you've been wrestling with me and I have finally won. That's not what the text says. It says you have wrestled with me and you win. You've been a faithful man all these years and now you win the match and I'm going to let you come into the land and be a king. There is absolutely no way you can read the penile encounter as God breaking a sinful man down and converting him. It's not that at all. But people think that. D the popular evaluation misunderstands the positive use of deception as a way to bring sinners to an awareness of their sins. There's several different things about deception in the Bible, but the ones in these passages are concealment and illumination pattern. And, of course, Joseph is a good example of this. Joseph lies about who he is. He lets his brothers think that he's an Egyptian. He conceals that. He deceives them. And then, at the point of revelation, when he reveals the truth to them, that he has concealed, that's when they are broken down and saved. God can do this, of course. God can conceal things and reveal them at the right time. And the wise man, who has many years of experience, if he has become truly wise, can also do that. You don't try this at home. You don't try this when you're young. You have no business trying something like this. But Joseph has been elevated to a God-like position. And from there, he can act like God in maneuvering the human beings to the point where they can be brought to crisis and hear the truth. But first there's concealment, and then there's revelation. Jesus does exactly the same thing on the road to Emmaus. He deceives those men. He doesn't tell them who he is. He doesn't show who he is. And then when it says they came to Emmaus, what does it say? He made as if he would go further. That's just sheer deception. Jesus knew all along he wasn't intending to go any further, but he makes them ask him to stay. And thus, he sets them up to the point where he breaks the bread and suddenly they see what's really going on. With Samson, you get the same thing. Samson sets this whole thing up. He kills the lion. He doesn't tell anything about it. He tells this riddle. It's all concealed. And then at just the right moment, he reveals that truth 
to his fiancée to see what she will do. And, of course, she betrays him immediately. But the concealment is there to bring to a point of revelation, which is itself a test. And with Rebecca, it's the same. Rebecca is over a 100 years old. Her deception of Isaac is an example of a wise elderly person acting to bring a sinner to the shock of seeing his sin, and she's successful. God blesses it. She doesn't do this so Jacob can get the inheritance. God has said Jacob would get the inheritance. That's not in question. She does it to save Isaac. And it says Isaac trembled violently. There was concealment. There was revelation. And at that point, Isaac, who had refused to listen for years, I mean, how many times do you suppose they had argued about this? Rebecca says, look, God told me that Jacob is to inherit. And I don't think Rebecca had some vision. When it's, I mean, Luther's probably right. When it says that God told her the elder will serve the younger, that means that Abraham or some prophet told her that. There were other people who could confirm this. And Isaac had refused to listen. But now we have a situation set up that will bring him to his senses, a deception and a revelation. And this happens in the Bible. And she wisely does it, and she's successful. But misunderstanding the positive use of deception as a way to bring sinners to an awareness of their sins is another reason why the popular evaluation of Jacob is amiss. And as I say, nobody seems to complain about Joseph doing this. Joseph's just a great guy. He isn't doing anything other than what Rebecca did. And then finally, the popular evaluation, having said that Jacob was a bad guy all along, all along he was a bad guy, finally he's converted at Peniel, they've got it exactly wrong. <laughs> the popular evaluation has got it exactly reversed. He is a perfectly righteous man all the way through Peniel, and shortly thereafter, but then he falls into sin at the end of his life by failing to honor his promise to return to Bethel and failing to get rid of the idols. What God had shown him through his life is that Yahweh is God and Yahweh is protector, and he needed to affirm that in the last phase of his life by going back to Bethel and not allowing any other gods in his household. That's what he fell away from. God had taught him that, he had learned it, and then he began to forget about it and thought it wasn't such a big deal and let these other idols be around. Of course, he continued to worship Yahweh. Of course, Yahweh was their primary god. I don't think Jacob was ever involved with idols, but he let his sons be. And that was his problem. So that is an overview, a review of the life of Jacob. I wanted to set it out this way because I think it's helpful. And particularly, it focuses our attention on where he messed up at the end and why Joseph now has to come along and just as Jacob had to make up for Isaac's sins, so now Joseph has to correct the situation that Jacob has allowed to come to pass in his old age. And we will look at that when we get to Genesis 37. It's one of the things that Jacob does in his old age is to put Joseph in this terrible position of giving him this special robe and playing favorites with him. And that's just another mistake he makes in his old age. And it's in the same category as failing to go back to Bethel, failing to get rid of the gods, failing to deal justly with your sons. And Jacob fails in that regard. He doesn't deal completely equitably with his sons. And when you don't, then you've got social chaos. I mean, we've got it in our society. We've got protected groups of people in our society. 
who can commit all the crimes they want and nobody will stop them. Well, when you've got all this favoritism going on in society, you're headed for big problems. And that's what we are moving toward Mount Sinai where we become a whole society and the problems in this society that are here at the end of Genesis are showing us why we need the law, why we need exactly equitable justice where everybody's treated the same way. So the sins of favoritism that we're going to get here in Jacob in his old age and in Joseph's correcting that and showing a proper way to deal with society is going to be really important here at the end of Genesis for setting up Exodus. But that's where we are. That's where Jacob brings us to. And when we get back into these passages, then next time we'll start with Genesis 37 to 50. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.